You're in the water loop. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet made possible in part by a grant from Springpoint Partners. Visit waterloop.org. This is episode number 153, On a Mission to Help. Thousands of water utilities across the U.S. are smaller and under-resourced, often leaving them consumed by daily operations and unable to take on projects to increase efficiency and reduce costs. But external experts can help these utilities to triage pressing challenges and then turn to strategic improvements, as discussed in this episode with George Hawkins, CEO and founder of Moonshot Missions. George talks about bringing his experience, including as the head of DC Water, and building a team to work with utilities and launch them on a path of progress. George also provides his take on infrastructure funding, consolidation, affordability, cybersecurity, and PFAS. The conversation will begin in one minute, but first, a word about our sponsor, Veruna. In business, I believe that the quality of the people involved matter as much as the quality of the products. That's why I'm such a fan of Veruna. They have a new, dynamic, web-based tool that helps water systems to stay resilient by identifying and tracking more than two dozen risks. With all the challenges facing water systems these days, they need a one-stop solution like that. So the product is industry-leading. But then you add in the people. Varuna is run by Shay Faboudet and Jamel Carter, who are two of the brightest, most dedicated, and simply nicest people that I've met in water. I encourage you to reach out to Shay and Jamel to introduce yourself form great new connections, and learn more about the tools they offer. Connect with them at Varuna.city. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. Here for this episode with George Hawkins, founder and CEO of Moonshot Missions. And I'm really excited for this conversation. George, widely regarded as you know one of the brightest minds in water, one of the great communicators in water, uh, and just one of the great people in water. So George, uh, glad to have you. How are you doing? Um, well, thank you. And right back at you. This is uh, <laughs> wonderful to be back with you again. Um, I've been a friend and ally of yours and admirer for as long as I can remember in the water sector. So uh, yeah. it's not only that you project stories well to an audience that needs to hear it, but you have, by the way you do it, you're actually advancing the ball on what those stories are. Uh, well, that's that's the goal here, you know, is to put some of these solutions out there, which we're going to talk a lot about today, right? We talk a lot about challenges and problems. The media certainly has that covered. <laughs> uh, but, you know, okay, how are we going to get things done? How are we going to tackle these problems? Uh, so, I guess I want to start a little bit with the the origin story, if you will, of of Moonshot Missions. Um, somehow it's been like almost five years since you left DC Water, where you were the head of, of that incredible utility, uh, and you went on to start Moonshot Missions. Wh- where what was that seed? What what was the spark? Uh, what what led you to this? Uh, it's a great question, and and a lot of people ask me because I loved and love DC Waters. A lot of my friends are there. It was very hard to leave. Mm. I miss putting on the uniform every day. Um, I, I love the come as many challenges as any utility has these days. Mm. I love being part of the team, mm. addressing those challenges with solutions. Because just as you described, utilities can't spend too much time admiring a problem. 
<laughs> they've got to switch pretty quickly over into, so what do we do about it? And sure. I love that. I love when the team got together. Sometimes the worst moments were the best moments because we mm. would have everyone together. We're trying uh, and we drop all the organizational, this, that, and the other. They're, they're, no, when the problem hits, we're all together. We're a crew. Let's figure out a solution. And the team I had was so good. Um, I was like the, I always say I was like the conductor of a jazz band. I didn't play any of the instruments. I just tried to get them all playing the same song and then they make music. Yeah, that was, that's, that's so what, wonderful. That's what a good leader does, right? The good, the good leader has the team and you, and you let those people do their thing and you empower them to do their thing. And I agree with you. And I loved and watching the team do what they were good at was in one of my favorite parts. Mm. What I found, though, because as you know, I do. T I was telling the DC water story to a lot of audiences, um, actually all around the, around the world, but mainly North America. And what would regularly happen, and this was over many years, so this idea as to why I stepped down from DC water didn't happen all at once. It's something that grew on me, which mm. is I had constantly people coming up to me after I'd make a presentation and say, that's a great story. We enjoy hearing about what happened at DC water, particularly as I was telling the story about where we ended up and the most common, the most common comment was, and is still, that's a great story. It has no relevance to where we are as a utility. Mm -hmm. Are we a smaller utility? We're in a, we're not in a community the size and scale of Washington, D.C. And by the way, D.C. has been growing for most of the last 10 to 15 years. So you've had an growing rate base. The population in our town has decreased. Mm -hmm. And so while we appreciate what you're saying, how does that relate to us? How do we even start on the path of doing some of the things that you were doing. And what that really struck me is that the need was a, an enterprise that could provide that kind of assistance to a utility to enable them to get on a path. Because what I found at DC Water is that once you're on the path, have done a few of the kinds of projects that we all know are possible with transforming utility and see the benefit, it becomes much easier to do the next one because you now have a track record and you have a story to tell to your board or your mayor or your council. You can look at the financial outcome of a positive project and say, let's do more of those. And the next and the ones that follow become uh, are not easy is the wrong word, but they certainly are. You're on the path. You okay. know what and how to do it. The getting on the path is the hard part. And who could help a utility overcome that first obstacle, particularly when they're uh, lower resourced? And that's where Moonshot Missions came from. I wrote the first outline for it in 2016. I didn't leave DC Water for some period of time because I was constantly developing it. Um, but that was the issue, how to help underserved communities that are not well-resourced, really good people. And mm. One of the things I want to emphasize is the people in these utilities work incredibly hard. They are offer, offering often multitasking on doing many things well. But what that doesn't leave them with is much time to step back, sit up, see what's out there, evaluate because they're so consumed with the core part of the job. Um, and that is what Moonshot was designed to do. And I'll say one other element is that we all hear about the retirement of, of water professionals, the silver tsunami, among other phrases. And I felt we can take that reality, which is a challenge, and turn it into a strength. Because I was asking people who were retiring from D.C. water, 
Would you be interested if you had the chance to sort of work with an organization where you could do projects to help utilities, not full-time, you'd still be retired, but you could use your experience to benefit your brethren? And almost everyone I talked to said, yes, Mm. we don't want to go from working full-time doing this to zero after all this knowledge and connection to the field. We'd like to be able to stay involved, particularly if it meant helping people and organizations that needed it. So the other component that came into the development of Moonshot were those two, how to help underserved communities and water systems, knowing that there's wonderful solutions out there that are waiting to be implemented if we get the nudge. And the second, having a whole crew of people who are retiring who could help be the personnel. They're they're talking to other utility people. This is not something from the, oh, no, I've, I've been in your job. I appreciate <laughs> what you're doing. And here's yeah. how I might go about it. And you can make an immediate trusting relationship between people who understand each other. So that was where the genesis came from. You talk about helping, you know, these under-resourced utilities. There are so many of them, tens of thousands of of these systems across the country uh, that don't have the same resources as some of the big big ones. Um, What are the common challenges? You know, if, if you're, if you're, you know, going to generalize a little bit. What are the things that most of them are struggling with, uh, the problems they face that then, you know, you and, and your team at Moonshot try to help with? What, what are the kind of common struggles out there? It, it's, a, it's a great question. And um, I would say, I would answer in several ways. Hmm. What we have found in connecting with the utility is in almost every case, we can't get to the point of advising them on some of the new things they can do that might actually reduce their costs and create some financial flexibility and be positive in their engagement with the community and all of those things. We can't get there until we help them resolve the key issue that's before them at the moment. And every utility has those. And when you think of utility and scale, the smaller the utility is or the less resources that it has, the issues that dominate your mind because they're what you're on your agenda now <clears throat> become more important on the agenda because your agenda is smaller. I've got fewer people. So the three or four things that are the mayor's this, the council's saying that, we've got this problem with harmful algal blooms and all the things you're saying about energy efficiency or whatever it is, <laughs> it's kind of nice, but it, I've got to get to those. That The first thing I would say is, is providing advice about how to help a utility resolve their issues of the day to gain some time on their schedule in order to do other things. Because just coming in, even if we're offering help to say, we've got all these ideas, let's do them. Most of the utilities we work with are like, we're not sitting around here with extra time in our schedule. In fact, here's what's dominating the schedule. A big chunk of it are these challenges we've got. And if you can help us solve those or reduce their their intensity, that will free up our ability to think on evaluate, select, and then staff some new directions. So I would say the first thing is is meeting the utility where it is, understanding what their current challenges are, and helping move those forward in a productive way. The other thing that is helpful to that part of the equation is that's how you get to know the utility and build up some credibility, helping them with an issue they have, get to know who their people are, get to know sort of the cadence of their interactions with the community around it. Best to do it around something that they're dealing with now. That opens the door. I would say uh, the reason your question is also so right is on that second category. Hmm. This is very much related to bipartisan infrastructure law and all the other federal and state funding that's coming into the water sector, which is spectacular. 
is how to develop and implement projects fairly quickly because these funds are coming in the next five years um, and some of them are coming quite quickly and how to get projects in the queue uh, for potential federal and state funding through the SRF, USDA, or the various uh, funding sources that are out there, tribal, um, that, are, that are out there that could fund these projects. And to me, that means having a very solid answer to the question you just asked, asked which is, of all the things that all utilities could do, and there's an endless list, what are the top 10 that are most likely to be relevant to the most utilities? And can we module, make those modular. So um, we're uh, improving aeration, world aeration pumps, which is something that a lot of utilities are dealing with the same pump technology they put in 20 years ago and repairing them at expense and overusing on electricity. But every utility has those things. So what are those steps that are common to utilities that rather than being a unique issue that they face, which may be the issue we resolve in that first tranche, like what's the problem you've got to clear some space. The second one is rather than a special thing, what is something that you have that does that hundreds or thousands of other utilities have? As a result, we know a solution that's been implemented in a hundred different places. It's well identified, it's been field tested, this is not some newfangled technology in the sector, even though it might be to your enterprise, not because there's anything wrong with you. You've just been dealing with all the things you need to deal with. And 80% of the work in figuring out what it is, we've already done. We've got a model for it. And what we need to do is customize it for you. So the transaction cost of implementing this new idea is low because we want to keep the costs low. We want to be able to move reasonably quickly. So that's what we call a moonshot modules. What are the modules? And we usually, I have to say, the most common area of improvement that most utilities can benefit from is the use of energy. Um, it's such a high, uh, in most utilities after personnel, the highest cost on their balance sheet is power. Um, it takes so much power to move wastewater or drinking water. And there's so many components into how that power is being consumed that you can improve. That is where there have been all sorts of new technologies, uh, smart pumps that don't always pump at the same RPM and that fix themselves rather than needing maintenance. And actually can, uh, aeration where it's done with fine bubble diffusers instead of the old, all these things that are common. Let's go in with those first, because if we can start there, we can do something that is that is will benefit every day. It can reduce operating costs and improve performance. That's the magical outcome. Work better yeah. and cost less. And that creates the momentum. We want more of those. What's yeah. the next one? Let's get on a path. That's the moonshot. It's not doing a project. The moonshot is let's have a utility that is now becoming like the bigger well-funded utilities. We're on a path. We're going to crank these out over the years in a regular fashion. And five years from now, the conclusion of the BIL funding, we will be a fundamentally different utility than we are today. Yeah. Better for our customers, cheaper for our customers, and better for the environment. How, how cool is that?
Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of things jump out at me from from what you just said. You know, it, it seems like time and bandwidth are really like you know, if you really buy, boil it down, that's that's what these utilities struggle with uh, because they've got priorities. They've got those those urgent priorities in their face. They can't they can't dedicate the time to being strategic in these bigger projects. So you guys um, actually end up having to kind of come in and triage a little bit some of what their pressing challenges are, whatever that might be, in order than to get to those bigger strategic changes, right? Um, and I, I love that idea, and I get it, that once you get that ball rolling, it's like the momentum, I think, is the word that you used, right? Then they start having more time, they start having you know cost savings, and they can reinvest that stuff and just kind of picks up, picks up speed. Are there any uh, any of the places you've worked, any of these utilities you've worked with, any projects that you've helped them with to get on this path that really jump out that have been particularly rewarding or notable? Um, my answer to that is we've worked with, we're probably t touching up to 50 utilities now. Wow. Um, and in, I would say there's a category, this is an interesting one, mm. of suggestions we've had of things not to do. Mm. Uh, usually it's over-engineered, it's a bigger project that's needed, and one of the tough decisions is sometimes there's solutions that are brought forward that are maybe unnecessary. So that's we feel good about that if it clears up. That clears up time and space for utility if you have if you identified something. That, and all we tell them is this is our opinion. We have no stake in it. We're not selling anything. This is just based on our judgment. Here's we here's a, a path that you might want to consider. So that's the first. The second, we have all sorts of dramatic stories about what we've helped on the immediate needs. There was, a, and a lot of them are small utilities. Um, one uh, drinking water system in Arizona that had a boil water order. Um, their operator, their longtime operator had left. The new operator wasn't sure how to run the system. And we came in, we evaluated their situation. We actually sent an operator to the site. Um, we did the put the training in place, the operations in place, taught the person what they needed to know. They got it operating correctly and the boil water order was lifted. Um, we're doing projects for several tribes where we're helping. This is not cost savings. These are tribes that do not have the water services that we would all expect to have. This is the, the shocking uh, reality that I think the U.S. Water Alliance and Dig Deep has highlighted and folks yeah. that don't have the services. There you're not necessarily saving money, but you're helping to invest money that does exist to help solve longstanding and sort of shocking challenges. Mm -hmm. um, a third scale of challenge takes a little longer, but that we're definitely part of. We're working in the Shenandoah Valley with a series of utilities on harmful algal blooms. They're coming up all over. Um, and uh, it's a tough one, and it's growing in its intensity. It hasn't gotten the attention that some of the other issues uh, of late. And we've banded the utilities together. We brought in experts. We're putting together management plans. That's not something there's a technical solution that if you put on this gadget, the problem is solved. Mm -hmm. But there are steps that a utility can take, um, and it involves the community because it's upstream. It's runoff. It's all the things all that, that you know. All that non-point source pollution that is tough to get a handle on, yeah. 
Yes. Um, and then the, the ones where I would say the projects, none of we've, we haven't been at this long enough and there's a long time horizon, but where there's projects in the works that are most exciting to us are the energy efficiency projects, which run all the way from a solar installation um, to biogas to uh, more energy efficient pumps. Those are the kinds of things that are very. Uh, one of the things I noticed you all doing is this, this peer to peer kind of effort. Uh, looks like a great, uh, a great thing. Could you talk about that just briefly what, what that is? Sure. And it's connected to the uh, comment I made about the utility personnel retiring mm. you know, or, and this is not only for utility personnel, but it's, and it's also connected to the ethic that you raised that I agree with, which is this camaraderie in the water sector mm. um, that um, within reason, it is rare that if a utility person gets called up by another utility or is connected with a need that the other person won't come to your help. It was, it's amazing. It's such an asset that the willingness to help each other. And the question is how to do that systematically. Um, and second, how to create a bench. We call it a hub. Um, but it's the same idea of retired utility professionals. Peer to peer was really the idea of connecting one utility with another utility. So if we have an issue at a small, we had an issue with a small utility. I'm trying to remember what it was about. It was a groundwater contamination problem. Again, this was out West and it turned out the bigger utility, which I think was Albuquerque. I'm sorry. I don't have the, sorry. My memory on the, but it was a bigger utility. We were able to connect the person in the bigger utility that had, dealt with this before in the same area with the person in the smaller utility that needed help. And then we stepped back and we allowed them to do what, what they're, what they do. And the issue with the smaller utilities is they're not as well networked. They don't go to WEF tech. They often don't go to the state. You know, they're so hard pressed and don't have a lot of money that there there's a need of a scheme in order to, here's what we need. A second category of who out there has that kind of skill and then a matchmaking capability. And that's what the notion is to peer to peer. The ethic and value is that water people help water people. The practical question, the solution is how do we make those connections easy? Hmm. Um, and that's what the peer to peer network is designed to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, you've been, you know, out of, out of DC water for about five years, you've been doing moonshot missions. Um, what, what maybe uh, new observations or insights have you kind of gained, realizations you've had from being in a different kind of, you know, a different view on this space? Um, I would say several. I, I love the question. Um, uh, reflecting back over the last five years, first thing I would say is it is not an easy world where your revenue base is public entities. And I'm not criticizing any public entities, but it takes a while. So without naming any names, we have been awarded several contracts that have taken more than a year to get to the point where there's actual money flowing. Mm. And large firms can handle the cash flow need to do all the work to get to the contract until it arrives. It is small for small. It is hard for a small enterprise, for profit or not for profit. Um, well, women owned, minority owned, or moonshot to yeah. sustain themselves until the process finally comes through that can generate you revenue. And this I'm is like how, how long that takes. I mean, you're kind of an entrepreneur right now, right? You started your own yeah. your own business, and you never kind of had done that before. 
So this was no, a, I, I, and I'm so sympathetic of how hard the startup world is, <laughs> nonprofit or for profit. I'm I'm right there, I'm right there with you, George. Right there with you. <laughs> and um, we're doing a lot of work now uh, to help underserved communities and the connection yeah. to EPA, but it takes a long time for the revenue to come. It comes. The question is how you get there with your small firm and survive until it arrives. Hmm. That's similar to the SRF issue, which is it takes a lot of work to get to the point where the SRF office in any state is ready to fund you. And how do you get that work up to that point funded so you can get reimbursed or funded? Yeah. Those, it's a parallel kind of problem. One is for us, the contractor who's trying to help, in our case, nonprofit. The second is for the utility itself, how to function until it gets. The, the second major lesson I've learned is that everybody can get better. Um, along with mostly helping underserved communities, we've also worked with some bigger utilities um, just from because we, we're a trusted advisor. Like I said, we're not trying to sell anything. Everyone on our team, there's about 15 of us now. Um, so it's, a, it's a crew of really experienced people, hundreds of years of combined water utility experience on the, on the team. Um, and that can be helpful to almost anybody. We're not trying to sell you anything. We'll give you our best advice based on our experience. We'll bring in folks who are experts on various issues when they come up. And what's been really interesting to see is that every utility of any of any size has a underserved or low-income challenge. Mm-hmm. So while DC Water was well-funded, it still had a problem of delivering services to the under uh, to the low-income communities and that notion of providing a value proposition where you can reduce costs it's not quite the need that a utility that has no has almost no revenue but both need it so that mindset of how do we save money while we improve is meaningful to every utility second every utility we have connected with is very good at some things and not as good at others so every utility has something to learn including us by the way every time we engage we learn something new from the utility that we're talking to, which is one of the really fun parts of it. Sure. Now, so that has been quite an experience. Yeah. Um, and then third is, I think, where you're, a comment you made, again, very good insight, which is the challenge is not money, actually. Um, mm. The SRF funds are now much more than they've been, but the SRF funds have been well-funded in many states. In many states, some of that funding has gone unspent. Um, Shocking. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that's not because there aren't, innumerable projects. I do worry, not for now, but have we thought through that if our goal for this very significant amount of infrastructure funding is to help underserved, have we really, should we create a category of funding process that's a little less onerous with that audience in mind? I'll just put that in the parking lot, but that's on my mind. We have a system that's designed for more full tilt and um, utilities like DC Water, they can have engineers and consultants and financial analysis and all the rest. Um, uh, it's a little different when it's a utility that serves 5,000 people mm-hmm. or less. The last lesson I've learned is size. Um, and I know you've talked about this before with other guests of yours. One of the realities is, is it's hard to optimize yourself out of size. Mm. If you just have too small of a rate base um, that – there's so many things you just can't do um, or shouldn't be doing. Running a whole billing operator, you run all the things that a bigger utility does, but you only have 400 connections. Right. And so you have the person doing the billing is the one doing the procurement is the one preferring the notes for the board meeting. It's the, it's it, how to band those entities together so that they yeah. can work 
in a collaborative fashion. Some say consolidation. That's sort of one end of the spectrum. Um, what if 10 utilities got together and picked one to do all the billing for all 10? They all contributed a little bit to it. And then you had one really good billing system as opposed to each one of them trying to do billing. Hmm. That'd be a step, again, on a path of how to have small utilities starting banding together. Because some of these small utilities we try to help, it takes a lot of time. It's not that much less time to help a utility of 400 connections as it is to help a utility with 40,000 connections. Wow. The issues are so similar. But in one case, you've helped 800 people. In the other case, you've maybe helped 80,000 people. And you're always in your mind trying to evaluate where do you where are the resources best deployed? Okay. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to help the small communities. That's a huge emphasis. But small communities by themselves, I think we're going to need to approach the regionalization, consolidation, sh connecting to larger regional entities. I hope that SRF funding can be used in that fashion. And it's not clear to me that if 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 you're a big utility and a little utility that's at your outskirts wants to connect into you, which would make sense to them. If what it takes from me is I got to invest in it because I got to build a line to connect them and they're behind on lead service lines or whatever the issue is, that means how are my rate payers going to think in their minds, I'm paying money now to help them? To help these people, right. That's yeah. what's hard about these contracts is hmm. that the investment needs to go that way. But current rate payers are like, well, I'm not sure why I would be paying for their water issue. <laughs> um, and that's a not a bad fair point. question. Fair um, question. Uh, yeah. Absolutely fair question. If there were, that's where federal or state funding could be the linchpin. You pay the upfront cost, get it up to speed, then you have a solution that's sustainable that ultimately will spend less money because the amount of time you spend on these little systems is kind of breathtaking. Hmm. And it's regularly happening. You solve an issue, and a few years later, another issue comes up. Because the underlying cause of the problem, which is a lack of revenue, a lack of scale, still there. So sure. when the next issue comes, it's so you're on a treadmill that in the short run you spend a little bit for the regional solution, but then you have a sustained outcome as opposed to a constant infusion of time and money as the problems keep coming up because the underlying challenge, which there are solutions for, hasn't been resolved. Yeah, yeah. Awesome stuff. Well, I want to go a little bit of a rapid fire with you here, as kind of as a last last uh, bit of our, our podcast. I want to kind of get your your up to one minute uh, reaction to some of the hot issues of the day here. Uh, just kind of what comes to your mind when you hear these things. So um, you've mentioned it already a couple times. The big infrastructure funding bill. What do you think of that? I think it's extraordinary. I think we need to. Think carefully about how we create the right network to help underserved communities do all those steps I just described, because that is not a small lift. And I'm hopeful that infrastructure funding can also go to these regionalization and consolidation kinds of questions, because to me, that's a more important solution to the underlying challenge rather than fixing specific things, which is what SRF funding usually goes to. A pump mm. needs to be replaced. So um, I'm totally excited about it, though. It's the opportunity for implementation of solutions is extraordinary. I hope the solutions go a little past just incidental uh, responses to incidental issues. Yeah. All right. And you, you hit on this topic also, uh, consolidation. I think it has to happen. Um, and And some people associate consolidation with privatization, and I'm not... Uh, 
instinctively opposed to privatization. It should be as a as an option. Um, but the notion of small systems each trying to do things on their own when they're that small uh, to me just doesn't work. It's, it's I wish it did. I'm not. But the notion of of having and, and I like you've interviewed E.J. Water. I like the idea of a co-op where we're not giving our system to someone else. We're banding together with communities just like us. And then we're cooperatively doing things as a whole that would cost less to each, then cost less than what each of us would do separately. And we share in that. Hmm. Then everybody benefits. We haven't sold it. We're now collectively doing this together with communities just like us down the street. If you can get over the fact that we fight it out on the football field every Saturday, every Friday night, um, <laughs> I, think it's, I think consolidation absolutely has to be addressed. Small yeah. systems on their own. We can't optimize our way out of that. We need them uh, to, to group together. Uh, another issue you've mentioned during our conversation here, affordability. I love the affordability question. Um, uh, our team at Moonshot just published an AWWA article, which you may have seen, where we analyzed affordability programs around the country and sort of took out some of the key lessons. That's on the notion of how you manage affordability once your costs are set and how do you help those of your customer base who are low income. Where I'm, where I'm interested, that's it's not unlike the conversation we just had on consolidation. You can do things to benefit your low-income customers and should. But if your costs keep going up, then that problem is just going to keep coming back. The notion of, on a relentless basis, evaluating, selecting, and implementing projects designed to improve performance and reduce costs, because you're asking that question, is ultimately how we resolve affordability. If you put in a smart pump that doesn't need as much maintenance and reduces the electricity use, you'll operate better because it'll be down less, but it'll cost less. And that cost less part can lead to permanent affordability benefits rather than not. And um, uh, I'm excited about the capacity to do that. Sure. Uh, one, a, a topic that didn't come up in our conversation yet. Uh, want to get your take because it's it's kind of rising in prominence even more and more. Cybersecurity. Um, gosh, I love that one. Um, uh, DC Water, only because of where we were located, was actually uh, several uh, uh, attacks on the cyber basis. I think one was from North Korea or otherwise when I was there. <laughs> so we elevated our cybersecurity profile probably sooner than most utilities. Again, it wasn't because we were better than anyone else. We had the threat probably sooner because of our location in Washington, D.C. Um, most of the solutions, or many of the solutions I'm proposing on that other front, how to reduce costs of food performance, involve digital services using artificial intelligence, the, the South Bend sewer story would save them 100 plus millions, I mean, $500 million is the number I remember, but huge amount mm. of money. But digitizes your system. Uh, AMI metering, one of my favorite projects at DC Water, creating digital information that can be accessed. So many of the solutions have the parallel of creating a cyber risk that didn't used to be there. Um, the electric sector, the financial sector, I sit on the board of the organization that manages the reliability of the power grid, where they run the EISAC, which is the uh, cybersecurity system for the electric power grid. Um, they're really good at it. I think we have a long way to go in the water sector. It's absolutely vital that we unlock these solutions, but coming with it is the new risk. There are solutions for it. It's not one we thought about a lot in the water sector because it hasn't been as much of an issue. Now, when we did things with old-fashioned pumps that had no 
digital component, well, you don't need cyber risk for that because the only way it breaks is when a piece breaks, not hmm. when someone is intruded. Right. So I'm, uh, I think that we're early in the stage. I would suggest we learn from these other sectors rather hmm. than figuring this else on our own. How do we learn from what others have done? Because there's a lot of sectors who are way ahead of us, and that's great. We can learn from them. Yeah. All right. I, I left uh, this one for last. One of the messiest, uh, most challenging topics out there. I want to get your take on PFAS. Um, you're uh, <laughs> you <describe laughs> it well. And it takes me back to my original days um, when I first came into the environmental field as a lawyer doing Superfund. I was a Superfund defense lawyer, and then I became a Superfund enforcement lawyer, so both sides. Um, and the fundamental principle of Superfund is that the polluter pays that if you're the entity that put the pollution into the system or made a product that created pollution that ended up in the system, you're the ones who ought to pay. You're the PRP, the potentially responsible party that you go after to cover the cost. Where we were always uncomfortable is that the only player that's left is the municipal government that runs the landfill and somebody has to clean it up. That always seemed to me to be the worst outcome. That here are general populace who have to solve this problem where the waste came from some entity that made money from it. Yeah. So the thing on PFAS that I always bear in mind is one is it's a chronic problem, not acute. This is not like a water, a sewer break that you solve and then it's fixed. PFAS chemicals are still being produced and being input into the commerce. So it's not, and it's everywhere. So this is something we're living with now. It's not all of a sudden kind of problem where we have an all of a sudden kind of solution like you would if there was a sewer backup. This is something that's out there. So we have, have to have, need a system solution. I'm very nervous about putting the onus of that solution on public agencies uh, as opposed to who are the companies, God bless them, I'm not mad at them, but if they've been producing PFOS chemicals for a long time and making tremendous revenue from it, the cost of the problem that, that has ensued should be borne into the price of PFOS, internalizing it, which means the cost of the solution should primarily rest for the companies that produced or maybe directly benefited from the use of PFOS that is now out in the world. Ultimately, consumers always pay because if those companies pay, they'll jack up the prices for things and so there's always someone in the end. But in that first step, to remember that this is not acute, this is chronic, not that it's not significant. It's been out there a long time and really fixating on how do we make sure that the entities that benefited from the production of these chemicals are also primarily responsible for the cost of its remediation so it doesn't come down to a cost for all the rest of us. Um, uh, uh, and that's the pr a fundamental premise of environmental law. So this is not, I'm not saying anything new. Sure. It does nerve. If there's small levels of PFAS in biosolids, and it becomes a hazardous waste under Superfund, which is an issue. And I, I am not knowledgeable enough yet to know whether that's a good idea on the chemistry. or the. But if, as a practical matter, if you can't now land apply biocells and you have to send them to a certified landfill, it's, again, a price for – talk about affordability. Hmm. That's the right. – Oh, the, the the price and the sustainability factor too. Is that really the best way to to build a circular economy and to reuse resources and everything? I don't think so. And if well, you're running in an incinerator, which is another solution, mm. what general what power greenhouse gases? If there's 
it's, it's not unlike when you're looking at a solution to a problem, are we looking at total costs because then other solutions come in place? Are we looking at the PFAS problem with the total picture in mind? And I have been hearing some very exciting stories about new technologies that are being discovered to manage PFAS. That warms my heart. That is the best thing about humanity, which is we're very creative when yep. the problems hit. Um, I'm worried in the short run how this could impact. Talk about affordability, like I said. Oh, sure. To me, the place I'd go first is the companies that made the product and made money from it. That's not to be mean to them, but that just seems fair to me. Right. That the cost well, of its solution it, is born that way. I don't know if you saw that just today, EPA announced that they are proposing designating certain PFAS chemicals as hazardous substances under Superfund. Uh, so there is some movement in that direction. Um, and just my personal story that I've told on here, I live in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, a company, Camores, uh, discharged Gen X, which is a PFAS, into the Cape Fear River for about four decades until they were discovered. Uh, and uh, the utility here has now put in a $43 million granular activated carbon system to get that stuff out of our water. We all paid for that, right? Um, instead of that polluter. So to, to your and point. And that doesn't sit with me. That doesn't sit right with me. That's, no. When I was an EPA enforcement lawyer, my if, if I had to summarize what my job was, it was to find the company that was discharging it for four years. And if they could, making sure they paid the costs. And that's, to me, not unfair. That is a fundamental economic aspect that if there's an out, a negative externality to the product that you've created, that that cost is born in the price of the product. And maybe it's after the fact, but mm. who else is better situated or, or more philosophically situated to pay for it than the entity that created it or discharged it? And sure. yeah. I, I completely agree with you. It needs to be handled, but making sure the right party is paying the price to me is a, mm. a fundamentally important question. Just the rest of us. Anyways, that's all yeah. with you. Yeah, no, totally. Well, George, uh, always a complete treat to spend time with you and, and chat about water. I appreciate it, uh, your perspective, and uh, I look forward to continuing to follow what you're doing with Moonshot Missions there, uh, all the good work. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, I love being on your show. Uh, always, I love listening to it. Uh, I love what you do. And for people out there, if you're interested, at George Hawkins DC is Twitter. Shoot me an email, George at moonshotmissions.org. The reason I say, if you're interested in, in joining the crew of helping our friends in the water sector, we'd love to hear from you. There's so much to be done. And the camaraderie in the sector, as you described, is where we are, and we want to do even more. But thanks for having me. It's been a Yeah, time. thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you to this episode sponsor, Varuna. Please learn more about them at varuna.city. To find all Waterloop episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.